ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Monday the 11th of December. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, the humanitarian situation in Gaza worsens amid food shortages and continued fighting. And second-hand electric cars, experts predict a boom in sales. The transition into electric vehicles, there's a lot of consumers that want to do that today. From an economic standpoint, they probably can't. They don't have the $60,000 to buy a new electric vehicle. So buying a used one is a great option for, to help perpetuate that, that electric vehicle change and adoption. Firstly today, a big cut in migrant numbers, tougher requirements for student visas and fast-track entry for skilled workers are all part of the federal government's new migration strategy being launched today. If you're struggling to rent or buy a home at the moment, the prospect of a curb on new arrivals may sound like good news. But some experts say migration isn't to blame for the current housing crisis. Samantha Donovan reports. Last year, the federal government forecast net migration in 2023 would be 250,000, but at last count in September, 500,000 people had already arrived here. Claire O'Neill is the Home Affairs Minister. The migration strategy that the government is releasing today has a primary goal of reducing our migration numbers back to normal. And it's really important that we do that as quickly as possible because we can only run this successful migration program for our country when we've got widespread community support. And we won't have that if the numbers remain at these unsustainable levels. She says the normal figure is about 250,000 and that's what it'll return to next year. Cracking down on the number of student visas is one of the government's main plans. More than half of that group go on to become permanent residents working low-skilled jobs. The new plan will bring in tougher English language requirements and checks that the students are actually studying. Claire O'Neill. We've made it much too easy for people to use side door and back door entries into our workforce and the primary way that is happening at the moment is through international education. The government is also cracking down on shonky education providers. Colleges set up which are really visa factories for international students to come in ostensibly to study but who are actually here to work and this is really bad for the country because those students should be having a good experience here, should be getting a proper education. Instead, we know they're gathering in low-paid professions, are highly vulnerable to exploitation and have no possible pathway to permanency in our country. Australia has been struggling to beat other nations in attracting highly skilled workers and slow visa processing has been a big part of the problem. The government's plan includes seven-day visa processing for applicants with specialised skills. We are with every other country in the world to get those people here. We've had this mentality as a country that, you know, everyone wants to come here and we're about keeping them out. Well, we've got to switch that mindset. We're in a global race for talent and we're not going to win it unless we do basic things like give people fast answers on their applications. But the Minister acknowledges we also need plenty of people to work in lower paid sectors. We've got the first of the baby boomers entering aged care. We are going to need many more workers and it is absolutely the case that migrants are going to be a core part of that workforce. Martin Parkinson is a former Treasury Secretary and was one of the authors of the Migration System Review 
review that's led to the new strategy. He thinks the government is taking a clever approach to reform. I mean, we said uh, it'll take a 10-year rebuild. Um, They've identified things they can do now. They've identified things that they will do next year, so a... um, Uh, consultation process around the points system for permanent migration uh, and around regional visas and working holiday makers. Australians struggling to find an affordable rental property or buy a house may be relieved to hear the number of migrants entering the country is set to drop next year. But is migration making it harder for Australian citizens to find a home? The answer is no, according to Nicole Gurren, a professor of urban and regional planning at the University of Sydney. Now, the evidence of that was the extraordinary experiment that we had over the COVID period when our net migration numbers actually went backwards, but we still saw rental inflation beyond the major capital cities and at a national level, and we also saw rampant house price inflation as well. So you don't think cutting the number of migrants next year will make much difference to the supply of housing? Changing their headline immigration is in a particular year and taking us back to more the level of immigration that we had pre-COVID is absolutely not going to put a dent in the housing problems that we've had prior to the COVID period and post the COVID period. We know to fix those problems, we need to invest in social and affordable housing. It's all the more important at the moment when the private sector is struggling with viability due to high interest rates. We need government investment to underpin new housing supply. We need the investment in the infrastructure also to support that new housing supply. And we need to ensure that when we do have new housing development, that a significant proportion of it is affordable. That's Professor Nicole Gurren from the University of Sydney. Samantha Donovan reporting there. So will the federal government's reforms do enough to strengthen skilled migration and crack down on immigration scams? Abul Rizvi is former Deputy Secretary of the Department of Immigration. Australians would be surprised to hear that over the last decade, what we have seen is probably the largest trafficking scam in Australia's history take place. And at the same time, the government cut back on immigration compliance action. And fundamentally, what that led to was unscrupulous people readily being able to take advantage of the the visa system. That is something that will take a long time to fix. What went wrong? I think what happened was traditionally the Immigration Department is pretty good at identifying scams and acting on them quickly. For some reason, when Home Affairs was created, an organisation that was supposed to make us more secure, not less secure, we had one of these scams start again and no one acted. And so the the people organising the scam just kept on growing the numbers. What do you think about that? Well, part of the problem was, I think, when Mr Pizzullo became Secretary of Home Affairs, a lot of senior immigration officials were forced out of the department and as a result, he did not have access to people with the kind of corporate memory needed to act upon these things and as a result, no action was taken. What has that meant for Australia, for the country as a whole? One of the things it means is that we have a massive number of people in Australia. They've applied for asylum but they they are being refused and gradually they become part of a shadow community within Australia. People without a visa, without any rights, who have to work illegally in order to survive and constantly subject to exploitation. That is a situation that's occurred often in North America and in Europe. It hasn't, it's unprecedented in Australia. Why hasn't that been dealt with properly at, at a government level? 
That's a good question. Why? Why the delays? Certainly the coalition government didn't want to draw attention to it, given it occurred under them. The new government, for some extraordinary reason, only acted on this very recently. It announced a package of $160 million to start addressing the problem. My fear is $160 million will barely touch the sides. One of the other big issues that's been raised is about the processing times and requirements for businesses who want to bring in highly skilled migrants to fill gaps in the economy. How much of an issue has that been when people are trying to get employees into the country to fill these vacancies? Fundamentally, the source of this problem was some changes that were made by Peter Dutton in 2017-18 when he abolished the old subclass 457 visa and introduced a replacement visa, which was extraordinarily restrictive and bureaucratic and made it very hard for employers to get high-skilled migrants into the country. And it's good that that's being, that's, that's being fixed. How much real-time data is available to the government, not only on the numbers of people coming in, but um, concerns about uh, visa scams, also the backlog of uh, skilled uh, migrants who are unable to get in, really a dashboard of what's going right and what's going wrong. Is that available to them? Australia probably is better off in that regard than any other country in the world. We have better data in that space than anybody. It's a question of how closely the data is monitored and how and how nimble the government is in responding to that data. Unfortunately, the current government has shown that it's not very nimble in that area and has delayed actions for far too long. That's Abel Rizvi there, former Deputy Secretary of the Department of Immigration. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has told Hamas to surrender amid the heavy fighting that's raging across Gaza. Nearly a week after Israel extended its offensive into the southern half of the territory, United Nations officials say the humanitarian situation is dire and that there are no safe places in the narrow coastal strip. With the war in its third month, the local health ministry now says more than 17,500 Palestinians have died, the majority of whom are women and children. Barney Porter reports. As the fighting rages across Gaza, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has delivered a message to Hamas. In recent days, dozens of Hamas terrorists have surrendered to our forces, he says. It will take more time. The war is in full swing. But this is the beginning of the end for Hamas. I say to the Hamas terrorists, it's over. Surrender. Now. Israel has indicated it's prepared to fight for months or even longer to defeat Hamas. But it's continuing to face international outrage over its military offensive in which thousands of Palestinian civilians have been killed. Overnight, hundreds of people waited for hours outside a UN distribution centre in central Gaza, amid the worsening conditions. I've been coming here for about two weeks, waiting for our turn to receive flour, this man says. Every day we spend five or six hours here, then return home empty-handed. I've been coming here every day since last Wednesday, this woman says. I'm unable to buy flour for my children. They haven't eaten bread for a while. It's dire and getting worse every day. Jason Lee has saved the children's country director for the Palestinian occupied territories. 1.9 million people. That's 85% of the population are now homeless. They have nowhere to go. 
They have no food, no water, no access to healthcare. And children, as always, are disproportionately impacted and they pay the highest price. He's told RN Breakfast thousands of Palestinian families are now fleeing from Han Yunus, a city they had previously been told would be safe. They're now heading further south to the city of Rafa on the Egyptian border. When I walk around and I look out in Rafa, I see tents, shelters popping up everywhere. Families are desperate to find shelter, desperate to find food, desperate to find water. The health system is completely stretched. That children, kids that have been injured, that are sick because they're living in such overcrowded conditions with no sanitation facilities, are unable to get the health care that they need. Vital ally, the United States has approved an emergency sale of more than 100 million US dollars worth of tank ammunition to Israel, bypassing Congress. It's come after the US vetoed a United Nations Security Council resolution to end the fighting. Jason Lee says both he and the Palestinians are frustrated. It is unconscionable that any member state would veto or vote no or even abstain from a Security Council resolution that is calling for an immediate ceasefire. But the US has pledged unwavering support for Israel's goal of crushing Hamas and returning all of the hostages captured in the October 7 attack that triggered the war. Around 1,200 Israelis were killed and 240 others were captured. More than 100 were released during last month's week-long ceasefire. Jason Lee is leaving Gaza to return to Jerusalem. He says he has mixed emotions. I am sad. I'm disappointed. I wish I could do so much more. And, and, but I, I also have to hope. Um, and I, ask, I get asked this question a lot. You know, do I believe that there will be a ceasefire? Do I think that there will be a peace? And I have to, because that's what keeps me going. That's Jason Lee there from Save the Children, ending that report from Barney Porter. This is The World Today. Australians are being urged to get up to date with their COVID-19 vaccinations as a new vaccine for the latest Omicron strain rolls out today. But advocates say there is a desperate need for better coordination in aged care facilities. Eliza Getsy has more. Heading into Christmas, there's a new wave of COVID-19 upon us and it's got people lining up this morning at Christine Kelly's pharmacy in Sydney's Inner West. Our phones have been ringing as well off the hook this morning, asking whether or not we are one of the pharmacies that has it as well and whether we have any bookings available for them today. From today, Australians can get two new COVID boosters that target the current Omicron variant called XBB 1.5. The new shots are manufactured by Pfizer and Moderna. Christine Kelly says she's seen customers of all ages keen to get the shot, some who haven't had a jab since their original shots years ago. People are more aware. They're seeing the effects of it. They're seeing it affect their colleagues and their family members as well, which is why they themselves are coming forward now. That's despite governments no longer tracking official COVID case numbers. Professor Nancy Baxter is the head of the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. We don't know who has COVID anymore, but um, certainly hospitalizations are up across Australia uh, and the number of cases in aged care are up uh, and sadly the number of people dying uh, mm. up as well. So we know that COVID's out there. There's one group of people experts are particularly worried about as Christmas approaches. That is older people. 
Nancy Baxter says the federal government's latest vaccination stats are a concern. We know that most people in aged care have not been vaccinated uh, within six months. We know that uh, only about a third have. And in aged care, only 1,000 people were vaccinated last week. So we're nowhere close to catching up. Uh, and in terms of over 75, it's even less. Less than a quarter of people over the age of 75 have been vaccinated in the last six months. So what I would say is that um, I know it's not a fancy Christmas present, but doing whatever you can do to have a relative in aged care uh, or someone who's over 75 to help them get vaccinated would be really, really an important thing to do to protect them to decrease their risk of dying or being hospitalised from COVID. Anyone can walk into a pharmacy today to get the new booster, but in aged care facilities, advocates say not enough is being done. Marilyn Cruikshank is a professor of nursing at the University of Technology, Sydney. She says there are challenges coordinating the GPs as well as training for nurses to give the jab and vaccine storage. And she says staff on the ground caring for elderly patients with COVID are frustrated. You know, these are our most, you know, vulnerable people in our population. They deserve to be, you know, looked after and cared for. And it's a matter of, you know, organisation and infrastructure. So we could have programs where nurses are trained to give the vaccinations. We could perhaps liaise with, you know, the local pharmacists to keep the vaccines refrigerated until they're used. But that just takes a bit of, you know, planning and insight. And, you know, who's going to do that? I just don't see that process happening either at a local state or federal government area to put that infrastructure into place to keep these people safe. Patricia Morrow is Chief Executive Officer of Council of the Ageing Australia. Aged care providers have got a critical role to play here and they need to be proactively engaging with their residents and their families to follow up when vaccinations are due. They do this for the flu and they need to be as vigilant as they are on the flu with COVID to try and make sure that people um, agree and get their vaccinations done. That's Patricia Morrow there from the Council of the Ageing Australia, Eliza Getsey, with that report. Indigenous fire practitioners in New South Wales say the state government is ignoring recommendations for more cultural burns four years after the devastating bushfires of Black Summer. One not-for-profit group that carries out traditional burns in the state's southeast says there's been so much demand for their services from private landholders ahead of the summer season, they simply can't keep up. The group says red tape has prevented the organisation from doing burns at certain times. I spoke a short time ago with ABC reporter Bernadette Clark on the South Coast. So I went out to a cultural burn with Fire Sticks, who are an Indigenous fire practitioner group. It was really special to be a part of and quite interesting to witness. They uh, start the fire in a very small patch and it slowly moves uh, throughout the area. And it's a lot slower and uh, it's called a cool burn because it's supposed to be a lot cooler than uh, other prescribed burns such as hazard reduction burns. So a cultural burn has been conducted for, for thousands of years by First Nations people here in Australia and their main objective is to keep country healthy. Uh, they say that through the slower burns it uh, revitalises the soil and they've seen examples of that really working. Bernadette, you've been speaking to some of the Indigenous fire practitioners and they're frustrated at the moment. Why is that? Since um, Black Summer, there was a Royal Commission and out of that, uh, it was recommended that there is more Indigenous land management and leadership. So within that, uh, that includes cultural burns. And what um, Indigenous fire practitioners have been telling me is that 
there has been no change. Um, you know, we're four years on from um, those devastating bushfires and these these people are telling me that they're just getting to these obstacles, they're getting to this red tape where they aren't able to conduct their cultural burns. Here's what co-founder of Fire Sticks, Victor Stephenson, had to say. I gave evidence to those in that Royal Commission, which also um, came out with recommendations, high recommendations, that Aboriginal burning methods should be incorporated into the mainstream management. And that was all just ignored and um, nothing happened. So since those wildfires three years later, three now going for four years later, um, you know, there hasn't been any attempt to, to really incorporate Indigenous land management. It's really frustrating. That's uh, Victor Stephenson there from the group Firesticks. And Bernadette, there's been a high demand for cultural burns across Australia, particularly in the southeast of New South Wales. Why is that? The Indigenous community here uh, is, is really prominent and they have been speaking to community about the importance of cultural burns. And uh, with that, people have been really listening. There's been a lot of people in the community reaching out to Firestick. So they have been able to do uh, cultural burns in some areas, but look, they haven't had the resources. I have spoken to state and federal government as well as the RFS, and the RFS have told me that they are committed to working with Aboriginal communities. And the state government has also told me that there's... Um, a cultural fire management unit currently being developed. So that's in the works. That's ABC reporter Bernadette Clark there. Finally today, in the race to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, a growing number of Australians are ditching the petrol or diesel car and purchasing an electric vehicle. And now experts are predicting a booming second-hand electric vehicle market over the next year. Gavin Coote reports. Mark Hetherington was keen to get an electric car, but the price for a new one was a real turn-off. So he went for a second-hand EV. So it was reasonably priced when we got it, and that was a great way to sort of get into to things um, and understand how, how it all worked. He's still one of only a small number of Australians who own a second-hand EV. Yeah, there wasn't many around at that time, especially second-hand. Certainly, we thought it was pretty lucky to find one for sale at the time. While touted as the future of road transport in a low-emissions economy, electric vehicles don't come cheap. Most new EVs are priced at more than $60,000. Brendan Green is the general manager of motor vehicles with Pickles Auctions. The transition into electric vehicles, there's a lot of consumers that want to do that today, but from an economic standpoint in these tough economic times, they probably can't. They want to, they don't have the $60,000 to buy a new electric vehicle. So buying a used one is a great option for, to help perpetuate that, that electric vehicle um, change and adoption. That's meant many Australians are waiting it out for more second-hand electric vehicles to become available. So it's only a small number coming through right now, a couple of percent of what we would sell overall across the year. That's going to grow uh, significantly in 2024 and 2025. A lot of our big government customers and fleet management customers are seeing are riding a lot of business, so that we're expecting that to mature and come through our auctions in the not-too-distant future. Buying a second-hand EV might feel like taking a leap of faith because there are still questions about how long the batteries will last. Brendan Green says many prospective buyers are doing their homework 
and checking the battery health of an EV before committing. I think the good thing is with electric vehicles is that there's a long manufacturer warranty on those batteries. That's the biggest concern, the battery. Um, most of them are, you know, six to seven to eight to ten years on the battery uh, warranty. So there's a lot of assurances that the manufacturer is going to stand behind that. So if we get the car at three years or four years, there's a lot of manufacturer warranty that stands behind that car. So everyone can, can be assured that what they're getting is going to you know, have a good effective life and they're not going to have to spend money on the battery for some time. Bryce Gayton is an independent EV consultant and the owner of an EV that's more than 12 years old. So the key point is the battery is unlikely to die, um, but it is a major expense part of the car. As a result, uh, you do want to make sure it's good. It's like doing any second-hand check of any car. You can actually get some apps for your phone um, and you can actually extract some of the data that the manufacturer doesn't generally give you. Um, and the apps are written to give you that sort of data on the state of health of the battery. Um, and EV mechanics, as they're starting to evolve to doing those pre-purchase checks, that's the sort of thing they should be doing. Mechanics who work on electric vehicles remain few and far between. EV owner Mark Hetherington, who lives near Tamworth in northern New South Wales, has to travel about four hours to Newcastle to get it serviced. You know, it just means we make a yearly trip to Newcastle. The servicing's pretty, uh, interval's pretty long. Some EVs don't have a servicing interval at all, so I guess that would be a bit of a uh, way to mitigate that. But for us, it was... The trade-off was, was worth it, and we're in Newcastle for enough, we can make that work, and we never have to worry about going somewhere to fill up. Um, so it's been, yeah, it's been really good. Electric vehicle owner Mark Hetherington ending Gavin Coote's report. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Did you know there's a cyber attack reported in Australia every six minutes? There are criminal groups trying to disrupt our lives and steal our data. But it's countries like China and Russia that are becoming more aggressive in targeting Australian businesses with government secrets. Today, Executive Director of Cyber Intelligence at CyberCX, Catherine Manstead, on why the threat is increasing and how we can protect ourselves. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.